0: Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Today, we speak to an Ottawa family doctor who's among a growing number of healthcare workers in this country subjected to threats and harassment by anti-vaccine and anti-mandate protesters. She now has penned an open letter signed by more than 1,700 medical professionals saying they will not be intimidated. We find out more about shellflation. What is it? How can you spot it? And how can you beat it on your next trip to the grocery store? But first, we look at why the success of crowdfunding and U.S. support for the trucker convoy is raising alarm bells in this country. After several days of silence recovering from COVID-19, the Prime Minister took part in an emergency debate tonight on those protests happening right outside of Parliament and across the country this weekend. Here's what Justin Trudeau had to say a little bit earlier tonight.
1: Individuals are trying to blockade Our economy, our democracy, and our fellow citizens' daily lives. It has to stop. The people of Ottawa don't deserve to be harassed in their own neighbourhoods. They don't deserve to be confronted with the inherent violence of a swastika flying on a street corner or a Confederate flag are the insults and jeers just because they're wearing a mask that's not who canada who canadians are that's not what canadians demonstrated over the past 2 years of consistently continually being there for each other the people of ottawa indeed people across the country deserve to have their Safety respected and deserve to get their lives back.
0: That was the Prime Minister a little earlier this evening during an emergency debate about the protests. Meanwhile, earlier today in an open letter, the interim Conservative leader, Candace Bergen, said Canadians want a peaceful resolution to this impasse, saying it was time for the government to, quote, depoliticize this process. Well, this is a process that we now know involves not just politics on this side of the border, but a lot of U.S. politics and influence as well, it seems, including on the funding side of things for the protest movement itself. Joining me now to discuss this is Sandy Garasino, former Crown Prosecutor and a columnist with the National Observer, who wrote a piece over the weekend looking into that GoFundMe campaign for the convoy that the California company pulled the plug on late Friday, saying it had violated its terms and conditions. Sandy, thank you so much for your time. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Ben. First up, I just wanted to know what you made of. Uh, We've been waiting for the prime minister to come out and say something about what had happened over the past uh, week or so. What did you make of what he had to say tonight, reappearing after that long silence?
2: Well, I'm glad that he spoke to the nation. Um, it, it's concerning that um, many of the many. Voices uh, in opposition to him um, still feel that that the message was very divisive. I think it was important for the prime minister to speak. Um, I, I really would. I really feel like we need to come together as a nation.
0: I agree. Um, today, of course, that's what the interim leader of the Conservative Party was saying, uh, quote unquote, to depoliticize this. Um, and yet it feels like both sides have done their very best in some senses to politicize this as much as they can.
2: I would think that every responsible leader in a position of authority um, in their party, in their government, at the municipal, provincial, or federal level should be saying that it's time for the protesters to go home and leave the poor people of Ottawa alone. The voices have been heard. It's time to end this.
0: Yeah, we're seeing a lot more of that, I think, in the last few days. We have heard, of course, tonight that there are protests now blocking the Ambassador Bridge, which is, of course, the busiest um, international border c- border crossing in North America in terms of trade volume. Uh, do you see any hope of this waning before it before it continues to wax?
2: Well, I think that the um, um, provincial, you know, the Ontario, it would be interesting to see Doug Ford start to take action because there are a lot of bureaucratic and regulatory um, actions that can be taken all of these drivers uh, have commercial licenses their vehicles are commercially licensed if they are fi- if they are um uh found to be block blockading uh an important commercial uh laneway there's a lot of there are a lot of remedies that can have permanent effect on their ability to drive an ability to uh enter the united states or re-enter canada so i, I think there's a lot more that can be done um thats that doesn't need to raise the temperature to the level of, you know, for instance, military action, which is almost what it appears we're getting to the brink of in Ottawa.
0: Right. A lot of focus today on that border, not just because of uh, the border itself, but a lot of U.S. politicians, uh, specifically conservative politicians, really jumping in and uh Taking, you know, a lot of interest in Trucks and Trudeau from people who don't often talk talk about either uh, in the last little while. You did a really interesting article in the National Observer, and opinion piece this weekend, just looking at the GoFundMe campaign, the money that's being raised, really the fundraising side of it. Um, you know, the convoys may be here, but a lot of that cash may not be. What did you find? Well,
2: um, I, I looked at, at this, uh, having spent uh, thirty years. Uh, um, in the fundraising nonprofit area, uh, from looking at it, studying it, writing about it, there's an awful lot that, that uh, Canadians can learn about this. But this GoFundMe clearly has all the ha- hallmarks of uh, foreign manipulation. There is no question. And in fact, we see they're basically saying it themselves. Donald Trump has said it, uh, Ron DeSantis has said it, Greg Abbott, the, the um, Uh, Governor of Texas has said it, and attorneys general are all upset in the United States, Republicans are all upset that their people, uh, their citizens can't donate to a group um, that was virtually unknown before January, before the middle of January, uh, that have have an avowed objective of uh, overthrowing the Canadian government. So why these people think that it's fair ball... For their constituents to interfere in a foreign in a, in a in an effort like this is beyond me. But it's very clear when you look at the numbers, this GoFundMe is in the top 10 GoFundMe's of all time that have ever been done. Um, it, it raised more money in two weeks than the Pulse nightclub uh, GoFundMe, where fifty people were shot to death in a in a um, Orlando nightclub. It is in the same range as the Parkland shooting, where uh, seventeen students were killed in a stu- in a school shooting, and and uh, some two million Americans marched for gun control and and gun legislation. Uh, it is in the same range as the Las Vegas shooting where 61 people were killed. There's no possible, and those were, those took place over multiple years, those GoFundMes. This was done in two weeks. To raise $10 million in two weeks is just, it's impossible.
0: GoFundMe, um citing violation of the terms of its agreements, uh, pulled the plug on this on, on Friday night and then uh, by Sunday morning was promising to reimburse everyone who donated. What I found interesting is just how much of a talking point this was. I talked to someone at Media Matters on Friday. He, of course, watches Fox News for a living and says, well, you know, they almost never talk about Canada. Sure mm-hmm. enough, on you know over the weekend, and I'll play this for you now, um, you know, an honorary, well, Canadian-born Ted Cruz, senator from Texas, was on Fox talking about exactly that. So here he is.
3: Gave $10 million to support the Freedom Convoy because they were so proud of the courage of these truck drivers. And and the thieves in Silicon Valley decided, we don't like your politics, so A, we're going to take your money, and then B, we're going to give it to people we like. Listen, if if anyone else did that, that is called theft.
0: Of course, by Sunday morning, that was not the case any longer. The, uh, I gather the investigations in many by many attorneys general continue, but the money was all going to be reimbursed. It just, I mean, again, you know, the fact that Ted Cruz is even talking about this country always is a bit stunning. But what do you make of that? I mean, wh- what is happening here for listeners to understand, do you think?
2: Well, I'm not surprised because a, 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 a person by the name of Jack Pesoba, who most Canadians probably don't know, but he's something of a Trump henchman. He's sort of in in that realm um, and uh, of the GOP um, sort of uh, dirty tricks types. And he actually put out the word about a week and a half ago, telling, saying that uh, that they were watching to see who was going to come out and support the truck rally, and that and basically making it clear that um, Trump world. And the mega world expected that all good Republicans were going to make a big international stink about uh, the, the truckers me in Canada. So I'm not surprised that suddenly we saw it. We saw it with DeSantis. We saw it with Greg Abbott. We saw it with multiple people. And we saw it with Ted Cruz. And everybody's perfectly willing to get on national television and lie about this.
0: I'm back with Sandy Garasino, former Crown prosecutor and columnist with the National Observer. We've been talking about a column she wrote over the weekend about uh, the GoFundMe campaign that was being used to crowdfund for the trucker convoy and just how much money it had raised and where a lot of that money was potentially coming from and certainly where a lot of the uh, amplification of that uh, fundraising process was coming from in the US. Sandy, I noticed that they've set up another crowdfunding site on a Christian site called Give, Give, Send, Go, and it's raised... I think more than 5 million dollars in just a few days. So clearly whatever's driving this isn't stopping.
2: Yes and and I mean it's important to, once again to remember this is this is almost all probably coming from the United States. I've looked at some of the uh, donations, especially the, in the large donation categories, and they are round U.S. dollar figures. So these are not Canadians giving Canadian dollars that are that are uh, translated into U.S. dollars. Those those are you know twenty thousand, two hundred thousand dollars coming in um, from um, obviously very well healed Americans, and there's a, there is you can tell that uh, there's a major effort um, by the Republicans to, to make this an issue and to have this be a dry run for what they're going to do in the United States. And there are also some indications that um, there are moves afoot to, to spread this to other parts of the world as well. A lot of these uh, very same sites are, are being set up in other countries. Um, and it does appear that there's a, some kind of effort to destabilize uh, these economies, as if we haven't all been through enough. I mean, really, we are really close to the end of all of this, and, and why are Americans trying to um, uh, continue what's going on in Ottawa? I, I can't imagine that uh, any right-thinking Canadians think that, that what the people of Ottawa have been going through is acceptable. Um, and But this is being driven now by American interests, Probably for their own interests domestically, because of course, as we know, they're trying to destabilize the Biden uh, administration.
0: Yeah, I can't. I can't imagine it's for. Ted Cruz's concerns about the Canadian polity, but just, no, just what, just what, if, so listeners understand, I mean, a, a some people would, they, there have been examples in the past, of course, and these are, these have been brought up in this country about more progressive causes getting money from the other side of the border. How do you feel right. this is different? You did, you did call this an urgent national security, uh, you know, a matter of urgent national security importance.
2: Well, this is a very highly targeted campaign aimed, once again, as, as the as the documentation of the organizers, their own documentation says, that they are looking to um, have the have the uh, uh, government dissolved to overthrow the government. We just had an election. Uh, About five months ago, in which the issue of vaccine mandates was a was something that was debated. It was an election issue, and Canadians uh, voted. Sixty percent of Canadians voted for parties that were supporting vaccine mandates. Um, So it's, I mean, in a sense, this is really an attempt, isn't it, to try and overturn the election? (laughs) Funnily enough, it's almost exactly what happened in the United States. Now, I would contrast that with what's happened in Canada with with foreign donations um, in the past, because I think a lot of people don't really understand very much, and I've studied this in quite a lot of depth. Over the last 20 years, or the last 10 years, rather, I mean, there are cross-border donations and international donations that go on all the time. And in Canada, over the last... Uh, just over 10 years, about $2 billion has been um, donated by uh, foreign foundations and, and the U.S. government uh, is another major donor, mainly to um, education, health care, scientific research, all kinds of stuff and conservation, wilderness preservation. And there has been a very small sliver of that amount that has gone to, it's been hotly debated. It's called the Tar Sands Campaign. Well, that was $4 million a year, uh, for about 10 years. The very, very, and, and that is in promotion of a climate initiative. Mm-hmm. Pretty different uh, from $10 million or $11 million in uh, two weeks to overthrow the Canadian government. I mean, there's really not a comparison. But there's a lot mm-hmm. more. I've written about this, and people can mm-hmm. look that up.
0: Mm-hmm. I just have about a minute and a half left. Um, where do, Where do you think... You know, you're a long-time observer of how things unfold in this country. I know this is somewhat different than we're used to watching, but how do you think this unfolds in the next little while?
2: It's so hard to see, Ben, where this is going to go because it does seem like extremism is, you know, the the door has been opened for behaviours and conduct. Look at Look at, we have medical professionals that are being urged um, to cover to cover themselves so that they're not recognized as nurses and doctors in the street. What on earth has happened to us? It's just it's so disturbing. I wish I could say that I know where this is going to go. I think I, I have enormous confidence that the vast majority of Canadians who have sacrificed so much already... Um, that that we are going to find ourselves again and I do believe we are coming, we're closer to the end of this pandemic than the beginning but I really hope that people will try try to control themselves from this kind of behaviour
0: Sandy Garasino, thank you so much for your time and your insight tonight Thanks so much Ben Well, it's been a very busy two years for Ottawa family physician Dr. Neely Kaplan Mirth. She's led a mass vaccination drive in the city, spoken very publicly about health policy, including to the Prime Minister and the need for reform and improvements. And she's also become the target for the kind of harassment and vitriol that a growing number of healthcare workers say they are facing by those opposed to vaccines, mandates, and other public health measures brought in to fight COVID-19. Well, last week, late last week, Dr. Kaplan-Mirth wrote an open letter now signed by more than 1,700 healthcare workers across this country Stating that they will not be intimidated and vowing not to let disinformation, violence, and threats undermine science and the care that they provide to their patients, Dr. Kaplan Mirth joins me now from Ottawa. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank, uh, again, thanks for taking the time. I know how busy you are, and this open letter has been has has had a remarkable amount of interaction from other members of the healthcare service. What were you trying to say, and and why do you think it's proven so timely?
4: Yeah, so it was really, it was um, the reason that I wrote the letter was actually in response to a colleague of mine in the Toronto area who's an emergency room doctor and was um, responding to the um, warning that doctors and nurses and other healthcare staff in Toronto hospitals should, um, shouldn't should wear their scrubs of the hospital, that they should be in disguise so that people aren't going to see them as healthcare workers and therefore target them with violence and um, and she responded and said, like, she's going to wear her scrubs and she's the granddaughter of Holocaust survivors and she's not going to cower to um, hate and violence in the streets. And I'm also a granddaughter of Holocaust survivors and my grandparents aren't alive to see this, but oh my goodness, would they ever be horrified if they saw what was happening in the streets of Ottawa. Mm-hmm. So as a physician who works in the community, I don't have um, security guards walking around the uh, perimeter of my office. I have to take care of myself, and as many people know, I was the subject of a death threat uh, a few months ago. And I um, am in a position to reach out to other doctors and nurses. And this turned into an open letter that was signed by the president of the Canadian Medical Association, the past president, the future president, and um, by the head of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario, and and then. All of these other physicians and nurses and paramedics and midwives and respiratory technicians and social workers and others, even dentists have signed because we are all working in an environment where we wear masks, where we require um, that our staff are immunized, that we uphold all of the public health policy that helps to keep each other safe and keeps our patients safe. And as a family doctor, I've reached out in Ottawa. I have been part of a group that has helped to immunize, um, to to give 12,000 doses of COVID vaccine. And so as somebody who's outspoken and said, you know, it's really, really important that we take care of each other and that we take care of essential workers and we take care of vulnerable populations, I have then become the target, as have many of my colleagues, of hate. And we actually received a lot of that privately over the last two years, and now it's more public, it's more visible, it's in the streets. And so we're saying that this isn't okay. And, and it's not okay at any time. And the racism and the sexism and the other forms of discrimination did pre-exist the pandemic. Uh, but what we've seen is it's escalated. And, and we are just saying, as a collective, that we will not be silent in the face of hate in our streets.
0: Some of the words that really stood out for me in your letter were words like scared and grief. You know, those are not words you often see written by doctors. You just don't, I mean, I, I know you feel them, but they're not, they're not the words of, not the words one associates with, with um, necessarily with, with the profession all the time, especially in a professional setting. How how, tr- how difficult has it been for you? I know you've been running those j- I Paloozas um, yeah. inoculating people in Ottawa. How difficult has it been for you to continue doing the work um, with that, that with having to deal with the vitriol as well.
4: So it, it is really um, the uh, you know I arrived at my office on Monday morning and uh, the first message that we had to listen to on our answering machine was really rude. I can't repeat it. Wow. Um, and uh, the the death threats and the and nasty letters, all of that makes it scary. To work, it makes it scary to walk around knowing that I've been a public face for advocating for the community. But the flip side to it is that every time we do that event that that you refer to the Java Palooza, that is, I say, okay, let's immunize all the truck drivers and bus drivers and um, construction workers and teachers and all the people who need um, to be able to access vaccine. And then we have we have hundreds of people who volunteer to help us to do that and it ends up being this wonderful, like, end of the day when you've helped to immunize a thousand people or however many people you feel just like, wow, okay, we came together, we did something together. And um, that spirit of community has also taken place by donating masks to to families who live in poverty. And, you know, somebody contacts me and says, hey, Dr. Kapmerth I have 500 or a thousand masks to donate, will you help? And then I say to the city councillors and the MPP for Ottawa Centre, will you help? And boom, we get those, get get those masks out to people who need them. So there's so much good that is taking place. And that really helps to keep going, even when, um, you know, there are these small pockets of people who are nasty and who are hateful. Um, really, like there are so many more people who are good and who are doing everything that they can to, to help take care of community and to help take care of each other and also taking care of us as healthcare workers. In Ottawa, there's a group of people who have stood at the roadside and you know how everybody at the beginning, they were all honking horns and ringing bells and, and so on for healthcare workers. Well, they've been out there like every Wednesday for two years, rain or shine, they're out there um, you know, to support healthcare workers. So there is much more good than there is evil in the world. And um, and so that keeps me going, But it but it is it is really hard when you are then confronted also with, um, with antisemitism and, um, and just nastiness.
0: Is that what it is? Is it just the, is it just the level of aggressiveness that you're dealing with as opposed to you know, people asking questions about vaccines or, you know, you know, people can, people are free to protest in this country to some extent, but the idea is it, is it the vitriol, again, to use that word, is it the vitriol that, 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 that's so, that's so scary. Yeah.
4: Yeah. And I think um, journalists are experiencing the same thing, but it's, it's like this, this level of um, hostility that is just bizarre. I mean, you know, I've always had patients I've been in practice for just over a decade and I've always had patients who, who decline to be immunized. Um, You know, that's um, also, we have lots of patients who don't follow our advice when it comes to diabetes management or anything honestly. And we have respectful relationships with those patients. Those are not people who would ever turn around and call us nasty, nasty things and tell us that we deserve to die or, you know, use all kinds of other Nazi um, references in in, um, interacting with us. Like that would just never happen. So When the pandemic started and I picked up the phone and I spoke to CBC and I said, "Okay, we need to talk about primary care. We need to talk about our most vulnerable patients and we need to talk about how we're going to ensure access to vaccines. And um, like I organized a panel with the prime minister in February of 2021 to talk about equity and access to vaccines. It wasn't it it wasn't something that crossed my mind that, oh, if I do that, if I talk about making sure everyone has access to health care, that I'm going to then be a target. For hate, like that, just would not have crossed my mind. So um, that's disappointing. That's a disappointing aspect of humanity. Um, But it is a small number of people who are behaving that way, and um, and it's and it's by and large. Um, A huge outpouring of support. And when we wrote this open letter, it was to say as healthcare providers that we are committed to equality and to social justice, and that we are committed to speaking up about hate, and that we will continue to work and we will not cower because of people trying to be intimidating or harassing us.
0: I'm back with Dr. Neely Kaplan-Mirth, a family physician from Ottawa, who's written an open letter signed by well over 1,700 healthcare workers in the country, including some very prominent ones, talking about the sort of intimidation uh, that medical professionals have been facing over the past little bit, and also a determination to stand up and not let disinformation, violence, and threats undermine science and patient care. Um, One of the things that, that, that was also striking about the open letter is you simply asked for the same sort of consideration that you give your patients, and I thought that was a very touching way of putting it. What made you turn to that as an example of how how to try and at least cool the temperature down.
4: So, um, so one of my colleagues who, was who one of the early people to co-sign it um, said, okay, but um, Dr. Morris, what is our ask? What is, what is it specifically that we want from the public? And I sort of <laughs> thought about it. I was like, well, all that I'm asking is just for basic respect and for safety, which, which we ensure that our patients have, you know, the, the, being empathetic and um, caring and um, being able to speak across whatever differences, right. And being, um, being somebody who has spoken out um, in favor of vaccines, of course I am, you know, there to have conversations respectfully about people who want to ask questions about vaccines, but I'm not there to be the punching bag or to be the recipient of um, any vitriol uh, because I'm doing the work that we're asked to do and, and that we've always done. My oldest patients, um, those who are in their 80s and 90s, and even at the very beginning, when we were first immunizing patients in retirement homes and long-term care, I immunized some people in their hundreds. And, you know, and their response was, of course, dear, I'm, I'm rolling up my sleeve. Of course I am. Because, yeah, if we can prevent disease, that that's what we have to do. That's how we take care of each other. And, um, you know, some of the uh, younger people in our population don't remember polio, and they don't remember the other diseases, the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine that we give to everybody. Well, um, you know, in my years of practice, I've never had to um, tell somebody that they have, um, you know, meningitis, or that they have a child who has lost their hearing because of measles or um and that's because we immunize. and so we we really come from this place of privilege where we take for granted that we can um that we can uh get through childhood relatively unscathed and um and now here i am just doing what we can to keep people out of hospital and out of the icus and um and it's shocking that that would be justification for people then saying that i deserve to die.
0: I mean, it is shocking, doctor. I mean, it is it is beyond shocking, uh, considering the amount of work that we we all know healthcare workers have done from the outset of this very scary and 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 different experience for most of us a pandemic. Most of us have not lived through anything even resembling a pandemic. And I just remember the early days how encouraging and supportive everyone was, and to see it shift has been has been you know one of perhaps one of the one of the tragedies of this amongst the many one of the tragedies of this pandemic. How much worse has it gotten? since the protest descended on your hometown or your city?
4: Yeah, well, I mean, Ottawa, downtown Ottawa has been under siege now for more than a week and um, almost going, you know, it's it's um, now finally the, the police are starting to um, clear people out. I guess there's um, now they're no, no longer allowed to be honking and keeping um, everybody awake and, and uh, really terrorizing the downtown. But like I have patients who have little... Newborn babies who live downtown. I have um, so many colleagues who need to be able to work downtown um, in shelters or at the Elizabeth Breyer, which is a, a palliative hospital and there's also a family medicine clinic there and the idea that um, that it's unsafe, To walk the streets i mean i have i have a child who is 13 and i haven't let her walk to school where it would be downtown because she wears a mask and there have been people who have been harassed and um hurt who have been wearing masks and like none of that is okay it's not okay that a window was broken on a shop front um, that had a rainbow flag it's not okay that um uh I was part of an emergency town hall meeting uh, that our MPP ran. And um, within minutes of it starting, uh, he had to shut down the ability for people in the meeting to comment. It was, you know, by Zoom, but people were, um, were originally allowed to comment and he had to immediately shut it down because there was anti-Black racism in somebody's comment um, while, while a, um, a Black activist was speaking. Like, it is it is um, unconscionable that that would be happening in our city in 2022, during the pandemic, um, and that uh, that it could carry on that there could be that there not only that that it could happen, but that it could keep um, keep everybody hostage for for so long is absolutely unbearable for everybody in downtown and, and and anywhere in Ottawa and really anywhere in Canada because it's it's not just happening in Ottawa.
0: I know you studied before becoming a doctor, you studied sort of the anthropology a lot of sort of the history, if I'm going to get this wrong, correct me, the anthropology of medicine to some extent. Uh, is that correct?
4: Yes, yeah. I did. I did. I, yeah. I, I was a medical anthropologist and I studied health policy and politics. I actually studied indigenous self-determination and health in Australia.
0: Right. Um, just from that lens, where where is this anger and fear, do you think, coming from?
4: like we know throughout history that whenever there is a crisis, whether it's um, a financial crisis or a crisis like this, which is really a health crisis um, there, there are people who are opportunistic. They look for moments of crisis to um, kind of um, embolden hate. And when my grandparents fled Europe and came to Canada um, seeking safety, one of the messages that they sort of brought with them is that um, you never know you never know whether you're safe and you know i I mean I've grown up in Canada, and um, the idea that uh, somebody could have a swastika hanging from the back of their truck driving down the street and honking their horns and intimidating everybody around them um, is something that was only. It was only something that our grandparents' generation had to deal with in, in that way in the past. But actually, there has been kind of, there has always been, and, and anybody who's um, Indigenous and anybody who's a Black person, person of colour, um, and anybody who's Jewish in Canada knows that the anti-Semitism is always just under the surface. So the, the fact that, um, that my colleagues and I who are Jewish receive anti-Semitic nastiness um, doesn't shock us like we we've kind of known that our whole lives. it's just now that it's in the streets and um, for for anybody who's ever had to go to the police for help, um, including women who have experienced violence, who've gone to the police for help, it's no big shock that uh, we didn't get the kind of police response that we needed right away uh, in ottawa and um, and you know that is the the disappointing thing is that when people who want to abuse um uh others when when there are people who want to harass or intimidate um they 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 are the the ones who come who are the most dangerous and those of us who try to speak up about it are um then vulnerable so i guess the short answer is it's it's always been there it's been there um you know throughout history it is what anybody who has faced racism or faced sexism or faced any form of discrimination um, has known um, their entire lives. But what's happening right now is using the opportunity of vaccines, anti-vax rhetoric, and um, the the collective exhaustion of the pandemic to just let this flourish. And um, and that is really dangerous.
0: Dr. Neely kaplan thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Well, I am at least, I imagine most of us are probably being a little more purposeful about the way we grocery shop these days. Prices are high, supplies aren't always there. The produce doesn't always look great. It is the middle of winter. Um, But images of empty shelves, obviously on social media, whether they be true or not, don't always help. My next guest says what we have to be looking out for these days is uh, because of stretched supply chains is something called shelflation. So what is it? How do you spot it? And better yet, How do you avoid it? Joining me now is Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, a professor of food distribution and policy and the director of with the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University and the co-host of the Food Professor podcast. uh, Sylvain Charlebois, welcome to the show. Very good, Ben, how are you very well, very well, uh we've spoken about supply chains, or last time we spoke a lot about supply chains and grocery store shelves now that these mandates have been in place for a few weeks uh are we seeing anything different? Are we seeing just more of the same
3: i I don't remember uh in detail what I told you last time, but I suspect it had had something to do with uh with you know, let's stay calm and nothing will will uh will change access won't be compromised however yeah. we are expecting prices to go up uh, and so i don't know if uh, that's if about that's, it
0: yeah that's about that's about what you said exactly yeah just that you know things were going to be the same we're not going to see you know sort of a mass change of what's on the shelves but maybe yeah just more of what we but we, we are
3: concerned about price obviously cuz yeah. prices are going to go up it's it's costing more to move things around uh the country uh and of course buying things from the US uh, and, and truck uh, those products into Canada it's, it's just costing more right now so obviously at some point I suspect a grocer are smart about it they'll incrementally uh, increase prices over the next several months
0: I know you're in Florida you're you're a visiting professor there this year um, yep. have, have you have noticed have, they, have you noticed any news about the trucker mandates is it reaching you down in Florida I know the governor said something this weekend about goFundMe
3: uh, actually there's uh, I think the protests in Ottawa attracted more attention in fact this morning again uh, we heard about the uh, uh, the emergency measures in in the city of Ottawa uh, that was' an, uh, that caught some attention here in, in Florida and and frankly it was a bit embarrassing because really the protests itself attracted more attention than the mandates at the border the mandates at the border I mean essentially what you're seeing is an industry uh, working with mandates uh, trucking companies are working with men they're hiring the right people so they can cross borders but like i said it will cost more to to get the right people to do the job but uh right now i i think uh with what happened in ottawa things really got a bit out of control and it, it didn't look good for 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 the country overall
0: is that the most you've seen of canadian news since you've been down there
3: yeah, sort of. I mean, it's uh, it's tough to actually get any Canadian news at all. And that's when you realize uh, anybody who's been, who spends time in the U.S. will realize that, that Canada really doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things, uh, which is fine. Uh, but overall, I mean, the pandemic itself, uh, the U.S. is in a different place altogether. I think the focus yep. is much more on, Things like uh, the Super Bowl and Tom Brady, than the pandemic.
0: Right. <laughs> I'll be honest with Amazing. you. <laughs> um, but back to groceries. I know you just wrote an interesting op-ed for the Globe and Mail about shrinkflation. Uh, not shrinkflation, but rather shelfflation. Shelfflation. Yeah. Shrinkflation. We know about because it's when you're like, "Wow, there seems to be less in this bag than there used to be," or "Wow, that chocolate bar seems so much smaller than it used to be." It's not your imagination. Tell me about shelfflation.
3: Yeah. So I, I think there's a parallel between the two because, uh, I mean, uh, shrinkflation was about manufacturers uh, working with their packaging strategy, reducing quantities, but not playing around with price. Mm-hmm. So in a subtle way, they were basically selling, they're, the industry selling us. Uh, less, but charging us the same, so it does contribute to inflation. Shellflation uh, really is sort of the same thing. It's a phenomena beyond the control of grocers, uh, which really contributes to food inflation. And and whenever you actually see problems within the supply chain, whether there's a pandemic or not, uh, uh, you're seeing, say, a a skid of of dairy products uh, on uh, uh, on a on a dock. At 35 degrees, uh, or you see a cold chain breach somewhere else, you don't have enough people to move things around, move inventory, you see food actually spending more time in warehouses, Uh, that leads to a shortened shelf life of products at, uh, at retail. And uh, what we're noticing these days, it's, uh, it's, it's a worse problem than before. Actually, a lot of products are impacted by supply chain woes. And the shelf life of many products in retail uh, has been compromised as a result. And so, uh, and that's what we call uh, shelf inflation. So you're basically, if you buy stuff, you bring them home, they rot faster than usual, and you end up throwing them away, you're wasting more. And if you waste more, it will cost you more.
0: Speaking with Dr. Sylvain Charlevoix, the food professor, uh, and director of the Agri Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University, co-host of the Food Professor podcast. We're talking about shelflation. Uh, so what obviously what, when it comes to perishables, that must be that must be really where we're seeing it the most, right? When it comes to perishable goods. I know most Canadians spend about half their grocery bill a year on perishable goods.
3: Yep. Uh, pretty much, and so it's pretty significant, uh, and that's why I think it was important for us to come up with this concept of shellflation a few weeks ago because um, we were concerned that people would would uh, would go back to the grocery store and hoard and and panic buy and buy too much food uh, as a result of what was going on with uh, all the pictures that we saw on the internet of empty shells. People were weaponizing the pictures of empty shells and. And we were basically arguing if you actually panic buy uh, right now, it will actually go against you. You're not working with the supply chain. You'll actually end up buying a lot of products and, and then throwing them all away uh, in the garbage because uh, products are are. are are, have written too quickly or they've rotten. And so that's why we wanted to send out that message as right. soon as possible to say, listen, be careful, work with the supply chain and buy for two, three days at a time.
0: Yeah, that was your recommendation was really to shop, um, to shop more often and to buy less to make sure that what you're buying is fresh. How does that work? Is that really, uh, how often should we be there and what, we should, what should we be looking out for on the shelves?
3: I, I think, I mean, for the next six months, I would recommend people to continue to do that. Uh, things are still quite dicey; they will remain dicey. Uh, I mean, on the one side, on the one hand, I, I think a lot of canes are still underappreciating uh, our food industry's resiliency. Uh, but on the other, I mean, we have to realize also that things aren't perfect. I mean, <laughs> things are pretty challenging. So you want to give the, the industry a break. And at the same time, you want to give yourself a break and not waste too much money wasting food. So so I think that's the balance we have to have for the next little
0: while. Because we really are seeing, um, I mean, you do notice with some produce that it just isn't staying you're obviously not buying it as fresh, so it's not staying fresh as long once you get it home.
3: Yeah, exactly, and uh and frankly, it reminds me of my days in Europe. I uh, actually lived in Europe for for a year with my family, and and in Europe, the shelf life of many perishables aren't as long, and so you kind of have to change your habits in terms of grocery shopping. Uh, every two three days is good, and frankly. I'll be honest with you. I mean, right now, uh, deals are rare. It's hard to find any deals, but you will find those enjoy tonight deals a bit more often if you go to the grocery store more often. So you can actually say if you have the time and you feel comfortable going to the grocery store, uh,
0: you'll be rewarded for it. I'm back with Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, Professor of Food Distribution and Policy and the Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University in Florida these days uh, on a visiting professorship. You're also the co-host of the Food Professor podcast, which I always highly recommend. It's always interesting. Let's let's talk a bit about dairy products because we've been talking about sort of shelflation, the idea that things on the shelves might not be as... Fresh as they usually are, because of sp- supply chain issues, uh, we know that people's grocery bills have been going up. I think we've all been noticing that. But something else came into play with the price of dairy in Canada uh, on February first. What was that?
3: Well, yeah. So the Cane Dairy Commission back in the fall basically recommended that uh, that uh, dairy farmers would dairy farmers would actually get. Uh, 8.4% more for their milk, and 12.4% more for their butter fat. Uh, that's when we knew that the dairy section of the grocery store will become more expensive, generally speaking, as of February 1st. Uh, it's something that happens every year. But this year was uh, unusual because the 8.4% is is literally more than double. Uh, it's almost double the the, the 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 previous record over 50 years. So it's a, it was a lot. And of course, when you're producing cheese and yogurt, that that increase is pretty substantial. Uh, And so this this increase is right now creating a lot of tension within uh, the supply chain. For example, so because cheese will become more expensive to produce, uh, we're seeing pizzerias cutting back on the use of cheese, for example, which is actually a case of shrinkflation, by the way, going back to our conversation about shrinkflation. Right. We're going to see more of that happening, less dairy products in, 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 uh, in, different, uh, in different products we buy every single day, whether it's in food service and food retail. We may actually see the return of uh, of illegal dairy proteins being imported from the US because right now, even before the increase of February 1st, uh Canadian industrial milk was three times more expensive than uh, than the milk you find in the U.S. So the temptation is very strong for processors to actually import dairy products, dairy proteins from the United States. So and that could actually we could actually see a lot of farms, dairy farms disappear in Canada as a result of all of these things happening all at once.
0: How does that work with industrial milk? Like, how how would that work in practice? In terms of, uh, of, of first of all, the price increases. How does it filter down through the system? And then, how would buying uh, proteins from across the border make sense?
3: yeah so typically so what we saw a few years ago when uh, lactalis saputo mm-hmm. agropur they all actually they all admitted that they were doing it for many years mm-hmm. it's because it, they, they, they just stood by changing labeling so mm-hmm. at, the, at customs they don't necessarily realize it is dairy or milk so mm-hmm. they actually go around the system and they're probably going to be fi- they're, they're going to try to figure out a way to go around the system again unfortunately mm-hmm. and which could lead to some milk dumping in rural communities you may not know you may not hear about it because dairy farmers hate to report milk dumping Mm -hmm. but i suspect it's going to happen again this year as a result of of this really huge increase
0: i spoke with uh, jeff a dairy farmer in alberta last week of course they pointed out that the you know inflation has hit them too right across the board that costs for them are high um and, and that this, this increase may not even cover those costs that they had, you know, they'd gone to the CDC, to, the Canadian Dairy Commission to ask for this increase, or at least their representatives did. Um, what do you make of, I mean, what do you make of the system? And then what do you make of what dairy farmers are saying?
3: Well, I, I think it makes perfect sense. I, I actually think that uh, he's right. I mean, it, it does cost more to operate a dairy farm. The, the The concern that I have is that we don't really have access to the primary data that the Canadian Dairy Commission is actually using. Uh, we've been we've asked for that data uh, and uh, our request was denied. And, and the simple reason why we were asking for the data is to understand more about how these dairy farms are actually managed. Are they managed properly? Are they competitive? Uh, and, and, and my guess is that they're not compared to the US. And so we have a lot of farms that are not necessarily well managed in Canada because the focus is not about generating more revenues. It's just about, you know, managing a a farm, and there's no incentive to perform better. So that I'm am afraid this institutionalized mediocrity, managerial mediocracy, mm-hmm. is really uh, uh, it's it, it, it's creating this in, this industry that is not as effective, and that's really why I'm concerned. Because at the end of the day. Consumers are paying for that. They're, they're paying for this lack of, of competitiveness, but also we're compensating. We're subsidizing the industry. $1.75 billion uh, we're giving in compensation for more products coming into the Canadian market. But we just learned a few weeks ago that there are... There are the number the, the amount of, 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 of products coming into Canada is not as much as, as what we planned uh, or what we, what was we scheduled, so there 's lots going on here that really you know, is, is getting a lot of Canadians to scratch their heads
0: so back to the grocery store shelves how do, how do these prices then filter through the system, and where do they start showing up on grocery store shelves for for consumers?
3: So already with fluid milk, we're seeing increases across the country, uh, five to fifteen percent, depending on where you are. We were expecting that. We we're also expecting dairy products to continue to rise uh, over the next little while, uh, if of course uh, dairy processors don't go to the west to. Uh, if but and and by the way, Ben, if if prices don't change in dairy products, I'm going to really question where that milk is coming from. To be honest, because right. it's really just so expensive. So. Right now, my biggest concern is that at the end of the day, we may lose more dairy farms. That's really what's at stake here. And consumers, in the end, aren't necessarily better served as a result. So that's why I think the system needs to change.
0: And you're seeing the price of milk go up. I understand, of course, that we're expecting that to then filter through to other dairy products as the year goes on, not just for yep. retailers, but for for consumers. How do you see that? How will we witness that, do you think, over the course of 2022?
3: Uh, it's gonna. It's probably gonna take a while because I, I think that grocers will be careful not to really uh, increase prices all at once. Uh, they'll be very careful. They don't want to spook consumers. But uh, that being said, as they increase prices, I'm actually I'm expecting more more consumers to start looking uh, looking away and consider uh, alternate non-dairy products. There are more of them, and some of them are pretty good. And so that section of the grocery store is pretty significant. And by the way, I mean, when you think about BC in particular, a quarter of vegans in Canada live in BC. And so there's a huge market for non-dairy products in, in BC, and I suspect they'll become even more popular.
0: Dr. Silvia Shalabwa, thank you so much for your time, as always.
3: All right, take care.